So, Mark. Yes. You are a high school graduate. I indeed graduated from high school far too long ago. You wish you were still back there, is what you're saying. I don't miss high school at all. I just don't like thinking about how long it's been because then I'm reminded that I'm almost 30. I mean, I think you're doing okay. Yeah, I do remember then all the adult things I do. I activated my corporate card today. I'm now a holder of a company credit card. That's fancy. That felt like a very adult move. Whole new worlds of embezzlement are open to you. I, it would be very difficult to embezzle. There was a story in the Washington Post today about a pastor who started his own cryptocurrency. Oh my god. And said that it was what God wanted him to do, although it's possible he misheard God. And don't forget that God needed him to do a $1.8 million renovation on his house. Right. Or something insane like that. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, what a way to kick off 2024. It's the kind of weird story we deserve. I do hate that we just exist in a world that is, all you can do is pay attention for scams. Like, that requires at least 15% of your brain power at all times. Oh my gosh, I saw The Beekeeper last weekend. Ah, I need to see The Beekeeper. The Beekeeper is a great time. It's everything you want from a January action movie. But the inciting incident is nice old lady Felicia Rashad is like, plugging away on her computer when she gets an alert being like, your computer has been compromised. Call this number. And you watch her pick up her phone and you're just like, no, please do not do this. I cannot believe that we exist in a world where an action movie starts with elder fraud. The whole thing is about elder fraud, okay? We then watch her talking to the guy on the phone as he's like walking her through how to fix her computer. But really he's like stealing all of her data and all of her money. And he is on, like, a Wolf of Wall Street-style sales floor, like, walking around, like, using a headset to talk to her while other people, like, watch and cheer as he does it. They are, of course, outside Boston, where all these scams are headquartered. And the whole movie, then, is Jason Statham getting revenge on what happened to her, prompted by a long monologue he gives about how stealing from the elderly is even worse than stealing from children. That is incredible. It's such a great time. The thing I found funny watching the trailer is the people aren't doing elder fraud in a legal, like, you know, legal but scummy practice. They're doing It's not like that Rosamund Pike movie about, like, getting yourself made their, like, heir. Right. They are doing straight up crimes and they have, like, this massive headquarters. Several. It doesn't work that way. Like... Especially, the funny thing is also we are in a time where the federal government would actually crack down hardcore on a company doing that open of crimes. They sent a reality TV star to jail for seven years. But sometimes the government can't do that job. And so what you need is someone who their job is to protect the hive, uh, but they're outside of the existing power structures. So that way they're not accountable to anybody else and they can't be stopped by anybody else it's so funny to me that in this movie they are just doing straight up crimes not unethical practices well so that's what's funny that is like they're the fbi the two fbi agents who are investigating what he does one of them is felicia rashad's daughter and the whole time they're kind of hemming and hawing like yeah this guy's committing crimes as he like blows up these call centers but like isn't he kind of right and so their whole narrative is like felicia rashad's daughter is like 
no, we're going to do this the right way. Like, you're right that these are bad guys, but there are laws that stop them. And he's like, oh, no, sometimes you got to go for the queen like a queen killer bee. Oh, my God. Queen killer bees will attack the bee queen if their spawn is defective. I love how Jason Statham seems to always work for the U.S. government. She tells him, the FBI agent tells him, you have a touch of the British Isles in your accent. That, you texted me that and I lost. I burst out laughing in the theater. It was great. It's a, I mean, that's clearly a joke. Yeah. I I think that is not bad writing. I think that is a writer playing three-dimensional chess. It's a gloriously stupid movie and I had a great time. Ugh. I cannot wait to watch it. It has so many sweaty bee puns in it, including a scene where someone is threatening to kill him and asks him to be or not to be. The writers of this movie knew exactly what movie they were making, and they made it. It's the beekeeper. It's the beekeeper. Ugh, incredible. So anyway, (laughs) we are not here to talk about the beekeeper. We are, in the month of February, talking about high school romances for the whole month. Uh, Every week we're going to be covering a different high school romance on the podcast from Stone Cold Classics to Old Hollywood to Bad TV Movies. And seeing what they have to reveal to us about Hollywood's conception of adolescent romance. Uh, I'm going to guess, wagering, uh, bad. <laughs> you think Not so? Not a good understanding. We should do that. At the end of the month, we should look at just overall how those ones all scored together on believability. Well, we recorded our... Uh, We've recorded next week's episode. We've recorded next week's episode, and I'm very curious to look at it all in aggregate. Yeah, I was. I think this one romantically will be less believable. Oh yes, I I do believe that. There's a lot more romance in this one. Yeah, I'm very excited for you to see the Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. <laughs> I cannot wait. Which is for people who don't know what the Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer is. It is a movie where Cary Grant is a guest speaker at his old high school. And high school student Shirley Temple falls desperately in love with him. And so the whole movie is about Shirley Temple trying to date Cary Grant, and he does not want to because she's a child. A uh, shocking premise for the 40s. Yeah, it's a a good time. But we're not here to talk about that today. Here I thought just since we're starting this month of high school romances, I feel like we should just get a sense of where we're coming in, right? Like, what are your favorite high school romances? I mean, one that stands out for me, well, it was funny because my first thought was, is the romance in eighth grade in high school? No, is the answer. No, it's in eighth grade. It's in eighth grade. (laughs) But I do think about The Edge of Seventeen as just, Mm, like, a really nice one where it's not the focus of the movie, but it's a good addition. And That's Haley Lou Richardson is dating her brother? What? Yeah. Haley Lou Richardson is dating her brother in that one, right? Yes. Who's Haley Lou Richardson? From uh, from the White Lotus, the assistant in season two. Right, yes. So I was thinking more about her and Irwin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The nerd who makes movies. Right, I had forgotten about that. And the movie ends with just them kind of friends, I think, more than actually dating. But it was just a very nice time. Yeah, that is a good one. I should watch that movie again. Especially post Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Now I'm really high on Kelly Freeman Craig. Um... Unrelated, and you can cut this part out. You watched Theater Camp, right? 
I saw it at Sundance and I saw it again when it was out in theaters. The whole time I was watching All of Us Strangers, I just kept thinking about tear sticks are doping for actors. <laughs> I think about that all the time now. And there was, because there were so many tears in that movie. And I was just like, I wonder how much dope was used in the making of this film. Which is, you know, the characters are doing actual drugs at times in the movie. Yeah. But much more importantly is that the actors are lying to us. See, I, I uh, feel that the ketamine is fake on set. So the tears also need to be real to make up for that. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Uh, back to High School Romances, which yeah, that movie Yeah, speaking of Ben Platt, did you want to bring up Dear Evan Hansen? <laughs> no, I really did not, to be honest. I hate that movie. I feel like we had a good time talking about that. We had a good time talking about it. Doesn't mean I had a good time watching it. But there's that moment where it looks like Evan Hansen's about to kiss his mom, and it's the only age-appropriate thing that seems to be happening. <laughs> it's just... I think that if they had cast another actor who was younger, people wouldn't notice how creepy the story is because it would be like on stage where you don't really pay as much attention to it. You just kind of go along with the plot. But because it's an adult, it just stands out up. so much. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to relitigate Dear Evan Hansen right I now. know. I just, ugh. What a failure. I feel like, though, you know, Dear Evan Hansen, Edge of Seventeen, we've covered a lot of good ones on the show, right? Ten Things I Hate About You, Can't Buy Me Love was a big early discovery for us. Say anything, dot, dot, dot. Clueless. Never Been Kissed, which I'm going to want to talk about on this episode a little bit. What about Never Been Christ? So Never Been Christ is a post-high school movie. Post-high it's about school high movie. school, but they're not in high school. It is about a high school romance, but they are now adults and uh, act more like high schoolers than some high school movies. A high school movie that I want us to do in the future, and I don't know if you've seen, is Dick. I don't know that movie. It's from, the, like, the late 90s. It's uh, Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams are high schoolers here in D.C. And through a series of funky circumstances, they wind up working in the Nixon White House as teens. And then when they get pissed off as Nixon, they are deep throat. Oh, my God. So it's like teenage girls who are mad at him are deep throat. And like largely by accident. That's amazing. We have to watch that. It's really funny. Does not sound like the romance is the main, the central anchor no, of that film though. The romance is that Michelle Williams is in love with Richard Nixon. Oh my God. <laughs> She's like the teenage girl who has the crush on Richard Nixon. And like she gets mad at him for not reciprocating. And that's part of what makes her deep throat. Oh my God. Yikes. It's so funny. <laughs> I was trying to rack my brain about other high school movies. And I do. I think I just haven't watched a lot of them. Some other ones that we did on the show. We did uh, Easy A, of course. Yes. Lady Bird. Ugh. The romances in that are just too painful. They're so funny. <laughs> like, a great movie, but boy, is the high school romance um, a little too close to realistic, I'd say. There's a dude named Kyle in it. He's such a Kyle, too. It's so funny. Um, I was talking to a student one time who really liked that movie, and I was, like, explaining why the people's history of the United States that he's reading is funny, because it was a student who only knew it from Goodwill Hunting, and they were like, yes, of course, like, good book, cool people can smack you down with this book. I mean, there are layers, because, like, yes, 
but <laughs> like there's good stuff in there, but <laughs> as a cultural signifier. Right. Um, we've also covered Bring It On. Speaking of Kirsten Dunst. I tried to watch Drop Dead Gorgeous, and it is, like, not even available to rent. Really? It was on HBO last summer. That's where I watched it. I know, and now I, like, couldn't even find a place to rent it. That movie is dark. I know. I want to see it. Yeah, I think you would like it a lot. Yeah, huh? It's not anywhere right now. Not even a DVD at the library. I just did a big uh, Blu-ray order because Best Buy is liquidating their stock. Are there stuff on sale? A lot of it, yeah. Oh, I've been trying to. I've been thinking about expanding my physical media collection. I I highly recommend it. I do feel like the the sort of high school thing is largely a hole in my collection, right? I've got a lot of my like big dumb sci fi and stuff like that, but a lot of these like just like fun comedies that we talk about, I don't actually own. But like, it feels like I don't need to own High School Musical because that's always going to be there on Disney Plus as long as that is a thing, which who knows how long that is. I also would never feel the need to own that specifically. Well, yes. Just another movie we've covered. It is. What other high school movies have I watched? Grease. Grease. A bunch of really held back people, all in their 30s. Right, but somehow less striking than Judd Nelson in this movie because it's all of them. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Is It's the same with Dear Evan Hansen. If you're gonna have one person that's much older, it just throws the whole thing off. Like, just look at Pen15 to see how absurd it is. Right, but in there, like, the joke is built in. Right, that's... That, here, like, it feels like they want us not to notice. Yeah, that, but that's what I mean, is, like, Pen15 does such a good job at pointing out the ridiculousness of it. It does feel like this is maybe where we should make our transition. I, unfortunately, cannot talk as much about, like, the teen TV show, because I did not really watch that much TV when I was in high school, so I skipped that whole era. I didn't shows. watch a lot of that type of show, either. Yeah. There was no Courage the Cowardly Dog in, uh... There's also, I feel like, not a lot of shows set in high school. Except for, like, adult shows, like the O.C., that's not an adult show, I guess, but... Right. Yeah. It's the teen soaps. It's the OC. It's Gossip Girl, Pretty Little right. Liars, Riverdale. Yeah. This is also a gap in my knowledge. Right. We've got to do our Dawson's Creek pod. That's what we keep coming we back to. But a, a thing that wasn't a gap in my knowledge because I had seen this movie before is this week's movie. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood high school romance actually make any sense? And are these high schoolers actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the high school romance is a main plot or a one-scene high school flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are kicking off our month with a look at John Hughes' sophomore feature, The Breakfast Club, which you had seen before. I had. You've seen it before, right? I have. I have a funny story about it, but we can start with you. Okay. I'm pretty sure this is just a movie that I watched in high school because my mom liked it. I, I did not remember how dark it was. Yeah, which I do think is a big part of why people like it, right? It feels real. Right. I, I, I think that is, like, it is not a bad thing that the movie is so dark. It's just funny how everyone forgets how dark it is, I think. Like, if you were to ask people what stands out the most about The Breakfast Club, it's like the dancing in the pot, not the, the suicide attempt reference. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. 
And the movie really, like, takes a while to build up to it. It's like the movie is thinking about, like, oh, do we really want to go here? <laughs> but, like, I, every, like, presidential election cycle, so a couple times now teaching, I do this activity uh, to teach about how caucuses work, where I have my students submit ideas. I use movies because it's easy. Like, a movie that should be, like, the movie of our class and represent our class, and then we, like, run a caucus to decide on it. So, like, I put the posters around the room. Kids, like, give speeches on behalf of the ones they support. They, like, try to get people to come over. We do the whole caucus thing. I wish I had had that lesson, because I don't know how they work. I mean, they're becoming less and less common as time goes on, so if you wait long enough, there just won't be caucuses, and you'll be okay. But every year, somebody submits The Breakfast Club. Like, this is just, like, a steady favorite still of teenagers which i think is kind of interesting and the pitch is always like it's funny and it's real which i think is fair yeah i did not see this movie as a teenager so i think i come at it with a different perspective yeah i think it's like dark and edgy in a way that teens appreciate but i think the message being at the end of the day of this movie is just look past stereotypes one let people all have stuff going on in their lives i think it's that but it's also just like Parents won't understand you, and sometimes they are also wrong, and you are right to feel the way you do. Yeah. And I think that is a message that stands the test of time. Yeah, definitely. It's something John Hughes talked about a little bit, about, like, the idea that when he was a teenager, young people were involved in, like, huge social upheavals of the 1960s, the counterculture, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. And by the time he's making movies in the 1980s, there is very much this culture of, like, young people sort of, like, just go to the ball. Like, get out of the way. The latchkey generation. Right. So I didn't see this movie until after I finished grad school. I saw it as part of, like, a string of, like, some of the worst dates that I went on. Hmm. This is when I was, like, starting to, like, use dating apps to try to meet people and, like, mostly went on bad dates as a result of it. But I would, like, keep going on dates with people basically as long as they would go on dates with me because I didn't have a lot of other options. And I went out with this girl who had just moved to the D.C. area. And on the first date, she was, like, living with family friends. And she complained that they, like, always had the news on. And I was like, yeah, like, I find TV news kind of annoying, too. And she's like, yeah, like, it's so boring. I said, yeah, like, I'd much rather get my news from the newspaper. And she's like, no, the news is boring. I don't understand why anybody does anything with the news. Oof. (laughs) I was like, you're in DC. I know, she's gonna have to learn. But then, over the course of the conversation, I was there, so we started talking about movies, and she mentioned that The Breakfast Club was her favorite movie, and I had never seen it. And I was like, to heck with it, here's a reason to watch The Breakfast Club. So I went to a fine public library and checked out the DVD. And then... I reached out to her. I was like, hey, I got The Breakfast Club from the library. Like, do you want to watch it together? Me, like, trying to have some good ideas. And she responded by saying, who goes to the library? Oh, my God. (laughs) Right. Just really. So then, whatever, it happens. We're going to watch The Breakfast Club together. So, like, the vibes are weird because, like, we're clearly a bad fit. She tells me going into it that, like, obviously, like, watching the movie, she has a huge crush on Bender. And the longer I watch the movie, the more I'm like, why are Uh, you here with me? uh, What about Crush on Bender says I'm going to go out with Will? Yeah, that doesn't track. Yeah, we didn't see each other again after that. I think that is fair. So this was my first time watching it just kind of casually at home. 
under normal circumstances. With no pressure involved. Right. Um, what do you think of the movie? I, I'm kind of mixed on it. There are things I really like about it. I think the comedy is really effective. I think a lot of the parents don't understand stuff works. But I also think that, like, in the way some of the John Hughes 80s stuff is, there is a sort of, like, nasty undercurrent to it at times that I don't quite vibe with. And a lot of that is built around Bender. Yeah, I just, like, I just think Bender is poorly executed. And part of it, look, is maybe I did not see this movie until I had already been teaching for a couple years. Fair. And I think you can't get around that fact. But, like, just chill out, man. (laughs) Stop being so obnoxious. Like, it's so much. There's not a single break. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in the romance. But there's, like, no redeeming qualities to this person. Beyond the general realization that, like, we've all got stuff going on in our lives. But there's not really anything specific for him. Yeah. Every other character, in some way, is, like, a good person at some point. His perspective doesn't shift. Molly Ringwald just learns to have more compassion for people. Right. And the movie clearly just loves John Bender, too. Right, and I and I don't I get don't it. know why. It's the kind of, like, aimless defiance that I find very annoying. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's much deeper there with that character. No, I don't really think so either. And, like, this is... We kind of alluded to this earlier when we talked about Grace and Dear Evan Hansen, but, like, the fact that Judd Nelson is almost 10 years older than Molly Ringwald makes it all feel so much more aggressive and creepy and just, like, not a fan. He's 25 when they shoot this movie. She is actually 16. It's gross. (laughs) I really like that they cast a like, actual 16-year-old to play Claire. Yeah, Anthony Michael Hall as well, also 16 at this point. I think it makes the movie more believable when you actually have teens in it. But the mix makes it, the mix is bad. Yeah, especially Judd Nelson, who is the oldest of them. Especially Judd Nelson. Like, Ali Sheedy and Emilio Estevez are much more believable. And they're like 23. Judd Nelson just looks like an adult. He looks like he is doing a never-been-kissed situation. He looks like he has infiltrated this school, but decided to be the most obnoxious person. Which, Judd Nelson apparently did. According to one thing I saw, he, like, went undercover in a nearby high school and hung out with the bad kids. I think the problem with the character Bender is it just represents, like, he just represents everything I hate about 80s movies in general. Like, the worst part of 80s movies. What do you mean? Just, like, the sheer, I'm better than you because I don't care ethos. Yes. The, like, nihilism of the 80s, the liking things isn't cool vibe that starts kicking off in the 80s. Right, which is his whole thing, right? Of you're a loser if you're in a club. Yeah, any club. Like, he makes it seem uncool to have friends. But there are allusions to him having a group of friends. Right. I don't know. It doesn't help that the name Bender just makes me think about the robot Futurama. Futurama. Yeah. That's not the movie's fault. No, it's not. (laughs) Did you get a chance to read, I sent you the essay Molly Ringwald wrote in 2018? I did. It is a very good essay. Yeah, so this is around the time that the Criterion Blu-ray of Breakfast Club came out, which is 
maybe six months into like the height of the Me Too period, like post Harvey Weinstein and all that. And it's Molly Ringwald after watching The Breakfast Club with her daughter, looking back on her whole relationship with John Hughes and the way that he engaged with her in particular, but more generally like women in his work. And I think it's, I'm going to post it on our Twitter account, but what the essay does really well is it talks about like the ways that she felt seen in this work in the way we were talking about the why, why these movies like still appeal to teenagers, but also this kind of like rancid underbelly to it. I appreciate that piece because at the, at the end, she's just kind of like, there's no clear answer to this situation. Right. And it's like, it's one of those articles where it's kind of not like, it's not a cancel this person thing. It's her stating like, I am struggling with this and I will always struggle with this. Right. And in some way, that's what it means to engage with art. Right. And it's very much a, it's very interesting to see someone who lived it grapple with it. And I don't think it's a cop out that at the end, there's no like answer. I think that is actually a good thing because I don't know if there is an answer. No, I don't know that there is either. We talked a little bit about John Hughes way back on our Mr. Mom episode. He wrote that, right? Yes. But he, he did, did not, not direct, direct it. it. This is his second directing job after 16 Candles, which came out the year before. And like we said, you know, five years ago, maybe longer at this point. Yep. Like six or seven years ago. Oh my God. John Hughes had been a writer at National Lampoon Magazine, and then he started writing movies for National Lampoon and others. Uh, including things like Mr. Mom. And by the mid-80s, he was looking to direct movies himself. And the first one he started developing was The Breakfast Club, which, amusingly to me, was originally called The Lunch Bunch. I like that more. You like it more? <laughs> I think it's dumber, but I like it more. <laughs> That's the thing. It sounds like a bad doo-wop group. Oh, absolutely. I don't know the reason why they would do it. Like, where that would come from. But I wish they did. Breakfast Club doesn't make a ton of sense either. No, they don't eat breakfast together. <laughs> right, they eat lunch. According to something I saw, the name change came from a friend of John Hughes who grew up in the area around where they were shooting, and detention was called the Breakfast Club, colloquially, at his high school. Mm. I really need to talk about the teacher in this movie at some point. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that, and we're going to have to talk about detention. <laughs> But, so John Hughes gets The Breakfast Club going, and while he's working on, on that, some of this timeline stuff is fuzzy across different interviews, but according to the way most things seem to agree with it, while they're starting to put it together, they're, like, starting to filter through just headshot submissions. They're not even really in the audition process yet. And he sees Molly Ringwald's headshot, and inspired by that, writes 16 Candles. Huh. And then... That script comes together to a, like, ready-to-go place more quickly, and so the order of things flips, and he winds up making 16 Candles first, and Breakfast Club after that. And then, while he's making this, he's already getting underway on Ferris Bueller, which uses the same high school for its interiors. He was very, uh, busy, I noticed. There's that period in the 80s where he's putting out, like, one or two movies a year. Yeah. I'm not surprised that he was filming on the same set, just to keep yes. things moving. According to some sources I saw, they were literally starting to shoot some Ferris Bueller stuff during the last period of shooting 
Breakfast Club so that in some outtakes you can see the crews from the opposite movie in the background. Oh my god, I want to now. <laughs> I need to go look for that. That high school is Maine High School in Illinois, which closed in 1981. It is now a police station, so it is still in use as a government building. I think it was a great choice for location. The outside is very, like, brutalist ugly? and ugly and of the era. Yeah, I'm not opposed to brutalism on principle, but it's an ugly building. Yeah, it is a bad example, which I think works in its favor. Yeah, oh, great. So for the most part in the movie, you're just seeing, like, the actual locations of that school, just shooting on location. Except they decided the library was not big enough to be their main location. So they built just a larger recreation of the library in the gym. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It is not the most, like, that is the room that is, like, the least believable as a real high school place. Well, it's, like, cavernous because it's a gym. Yeah. I guess on a smaller scale, it would seem more normal. Very large statue for a high it is school a big statue. library. I was thinking a lot about it where I was like, was that made by students? Did they like buy it from a local artist? What's the story here? Because the movie brings attention to it. Well, they throw the lunch meat on it. Yeah. And ride on it later. One very interesting thing watching this movie is it was another example of having difficulty divorcing the overly parodied scene from the original where... When you watch the dance scene, having seen so many parodies, it's hard to be able to watch it and be like, not feel like it's overdone, even though when it came out, very much not overdone, because it was the first. That is so specifically a community thing. And this is such a community movie to me, too, because Abed does multiple monologues from it in the pilot. You know what I got for Christmas? It was a banner year at the Bender family. I got a carton of cigarettes. The old man grabbed me and said, Hey, smoke up, Johnny! No, Dad, what about you? Well, uh, that, that actually was from The Breakfast Club. Oh, I mean, Community clearly is taking inspiration from The Breakfast Club in a weird way. And explicitly so. And explicitly so, yeah. No, the weird thing for me is not the scenes that are in the movie. It's that somehow I, like, worked into my head scenes that were not in the movie were. That's weird -er. I kept waiting for the swimming pool scene. What swimming? Which in in my head definitely happened. So Molly Ringwald tells this story about how she signs on for The Breakfast Club. There are some differences of opinion on this, but I'll go with her. She claims that she was originally offered the part of Allison, the Ali Sheedy part, and that she pushed to be cast as Claire instead. And she tells this story about how then she was excited about the screenplay, ready to go. It takes them a long time to put the cast together, but when they get it together, they go to make the movie. And in the shooting script, there's this scene that was not in the original version of the screenplay where the teacher. What's it, Richard Vernon? Yeah, I think so. One of his other plot lines going on is that he's obsessed with this, like, female gym teacher. And on this Saturday, he learns that over the weekends, she swims naked in the school swimming pool. And so there's a scene, there was a scene of, like, him spying on her swimming naked in the swimming pool. And Molly Ringwald tells a story about going to John Hughes and being like, we should get rid of this. This is kind of gross and does nothing for the movie. Which is true. Right. But in my head... I read the Molly Ringwald essay 
when it came out in 2018. And I think this story is mentioned in there. But, like, somewhere in my head, I just lodged in, like, oh, there's this weird scene at the Breakfast Club. And I kept waiting for it to happen. Yeah, um, that does not happen. No, thank goodness. No, instead of that, we only have one really creepy voyeuristic scene. I do think this is a good time, because we'll get into that scene later. But I do think this is a good time to talk about how weird this vice principal is. Yes. Here's what I love about this vice principal character, who is uh, played by Paul Gleason. I like how bored he is this day. That is funny, but the thing to me is, he is imposing this on himself every weekend for the rest of the school year. That's his mistake. And, I don't know, I just can't imagine. He almost seems gleeful to be at detention on a Saturday. And I'm like, for eight hours, I'm like, don't you have a life? He's clearly bored when you see him, like, sticking pencils into a paper cup. Yeah, it's one thing for, like, Paul Giamatti and the holdovers to hand out detentions like they're candy, because he has to be at school anyway. Yeah, and even a detention after school on a weekday makes sense. But on a weekend, like, you're not just punishing the students, you're punishing yourself. Yeah, so how did detention work at your high school? I I know you were abroad, so things are different, I assume. Do not know. I never went. I don't know if I have any friends that went. I think it just happened during your free period. Like, yeah, I think that was it. Is during your free period, you were required to go to like study hall where you couldn't talk to your friends. You had to study and you were forced to be in a like classroom. Okay. At my high school, detention was on Saturday morning. It was at eight instead of seven, like in this movie. So you had that at least. And there were one, two, and three-hour detentions. So when you were given a detention, it would be for one, two, or three hours. Yeah. And the way it worked was it was in the cafeteria. You just had to sit, like, on your own in the cafeteria. And you weren't allowed to, like, lie down or go to sleep or anything. You just had to sit there in silence until your final hour of detention. So if you had one hour of detention, like, that hour. But, like, two hours, you had to sit in silence for one. And then your final hour of detention you had to write an essay about what you did that landed you in detention, uh, why it was wrong, and how it negatively impacted the school community. I just think that, I mean, that's fine. I don't know. I think just making kids sit in silence isn't going to be as useful as having them, like, study or think. generally tend to agree with you. But at the same time, I think I would die if I had to sit in silence for eight hours i was given a a one hour detention once because i i went to a catholic school and every once in a while we would have school mass and you had to wear a tie normally you could just wear a polo shirt but on a mass day you had to wear a button-down shirt and a tie and i forgot to wear a tie one time my freshman year which was an automatic one hour detention that's absurd i tend to agree so that saturday i had to go in and write my essay about how not wearing a tie negatively impacted the school community also absurd I do not remember what I wrote. I don't think there's a way you could write that without it coming across as a joke. Exactly, right. But at least that's, like, more of a meaningful prompt than in this movie where the essay prompt is like, who do you think you are? It's so clearly a setup for the plot of a movie. Yes, but in-universe, it feels like this is not the norm. Like, he's just annoyed at them and he's like, I'm gonna make you do work. Right, yeah, he does not have it planned, I don't think. Yeah, it feels like he just made it up. It's bizarre. 
That teacher, I don't care for him. No, he's bad. And it is kind of, what's interesting is like, I feel like the movie is trying to have some, some interest in his internal life as it has all this interest in the internal lives of the students. I think some of his scenes with the custodian are trying to get at like, where is he in life? What does he want? But it doesn't quite get there. And it kind of can't because this movie that's so much from the teen's perspective, it can't get at like what makes a vice principal tick. He also threatens to beat a child. Well, he does that too. So didn't like that. I think there is there's some objectionable behavior in this movie. There's a lot of objectionable behavior in this movie. I had forgotten how um, casually fag and faggot were used by John Hughes. Uh-huh. Oh, from the beginning, right? Before the movie's even really started, we see it painted on a locker. Yeah, and I don't even know whose locker it was painted on. Is that just supposed to be general bad kids behavior, or is that part of one of their, like... I think it's on Bender's. I mean, Bender has that, like, guillotine contraption hooked up in the one locker, but he also seems to have the combination for the locker above his. Like, there's a, a stacked pair of lockers that he can get into both of them, and one of them has guillotine. but. The lower one with the guillotine is the one that has the graffiti on it. And I think this is like some kind of recurring school line about him because Emilio Estevez makes the same comments about Bender. That's true, which I don't really get. Right, there's know. nothing in Bender's behavior in the movie that it seems like would naturally lead people to that conclusion. Right, okay. I'm glad I'm not out, like, <laughs> just out there. Yeah. Like, it would only make sense just being a synonym for, like, bad, but yeah. especially the way Emilio Estevez throws around, it feels specific. Right. It is hard to comprehend for me, like, what about his character would lend itself to that slur. Yeah. He's almost, like, aggressively straight. Yeah. Forget the almost. He is just aggressively straight. No, he's aggressively straight. Almost I mean- violently. Like, I guess it, like, could be overcompensation is, like, the but it closest feel like I it can is. get. But it doesn't feel like it. It just feels like misogyny. Yeah. Speaking of misogyny, do you want to talk about the romance of this movie? <laughs> sure, I guess. Oh, man. Um, Yeah, it's a, it's a tough movie, right? Because it is good. It is. And quite funny. Like, right, at its, at its strongest, it feels, like, so smartly observed in terms of behavior. Like, you watch the kids, like, you watch Anthony Michael Hall playing with a pen or the way the kids, like, sit around doing nothing. It does feel real in a way that you don't see in anything else. But funny as well, that humor of recognition. But at the same time, you know, this is why I'm glad I reread that Molly Ringwald essay, right? There is this just, like, kind of unpleasant undercurrent stuff. It's things like them starting to whistle, like, one person starts whistling, and then all of a sudden they're all whistling. The Bridge whistling. on the River Kwai thing. Right. It's great. And, I mean, honestly, watching him smoke pot was kind of funny. Because it's so over the top. I do not understand how he broke that door. Um, he removed... That's a, a solid s- pane of glass. Oh, that door. Oh, right. Yeah, I don't know. That's one thing in movies and TV in general. People manage to break glass doors and windows much more easily than you can in real life. Yeah. People are large and distribute their weight over a large area. It's also just weird in this movie because, like, look, if the beekeeper needs to break through a window, I trust him to do that. That's his job. 
But, like, the movie doesn't do anything with the fact that Emilio Estevez breaks the door. Nobody mentions it. No one mentions it. There's no, like, broken glass shards in his body in any place. Like, they don't even get in trouble for it. No, it is a weird addition that I think didn't need to be there even. Speaking of them getting in trouble, here's maybe the teacherist thing that I'm going to say on this podcast. These kids deserved to be in detention. Yeah. I mean, the movie has this the movie has this self-righteous attitude of like it's stupid that we're here. And when Anthony Michael Hall writes the letter, the essay at the end of the movie, he talks about them all being there, quote, for whatever it was we did wrong. And I'm like, you mostly did things that deserve to get into get you into detention. Emilio Estevez violently bullied a kid. Uh, Bender pulled a fire alarm for no reason. Anthony Michael Hall brought a gun to school. Um, I think he deserved a bit more than detention, which more than anything is probably psychiatric inpatient care, right. residential and, like, care. Molly Ringwald is like skipping out on school, which like, yeah, gets you detention. Yeah, no, detention is a fairly minor, generally, like the first step in behavior management. Right. Like, what Emilio Estevez and John Nelson did are crimes. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I think detention is the most reasonable, if not too lenient punishment for them. So that's where, again, like, I I have only seen this movie as a teacher. But I watch this and I'm like, you kids need to chill out. You deserve to be in detention. I mean, Emilio Estevez's character, like... I think that also comes down to a difference in our era, too, where bullying, when we were growing up, we were, like, zero-tolerance-era kids. Yes. I did wonder about, like, the tactic. Like, how is it that you tape a kid's butt cheeks together? Like, do you spread them and make a tape bubble and then shove them back together, or are you taping across the butt? I was picturing down the crack, and then, like, okay. a few a few layers, like a box. Like, you're taping a box okay. shut. Sure, that makes sense. I mean, I think one of the, like, it's also important to note that he was forcibly removing the clothing of a child at school. Yeah. All around bad. Honestly, the one- Whatever it is we did wrong, get out of here. The one who most deserved to just be, like, in detention is Claire, because she skipped class. Like, you skip class, go to detention, you learn your lesson, you don't skip class. That is the rationale behind it. Ali Sheedy doesn't count, she could leave at any time. (laughs) She's there because she wants to be. Andrew, probably, I guess if this is his, like, first offense, detention is probably fine. John Bender committed a crime, and Anthony Michael Hall needs to go to a doctor. Yeah. So, I I have no patience for these children. I have compassion for them, but come on. Oh, I think maybe my favorite joke in the movie is Claire eating sushi for lunch. Oh, it rocks. Because that is the most, like, 80s time capsule moment of the movie. It made me wish she had walked in with a latte, but that would be more 90s. Yeah, that's getting into the 90s. The sushi is the perfect class signifier for her. Right. It's, like, so exotic and weird, right? We've all gotten used to pizza, but now sushi, that's strange stuff. That's new. That's exotic. The fear, like, fear of Japan is creeping in. Fear of Japan, but also, like, more wide exposure to Japanese culture. At the, yeah. And... It's also, I mean, it implies a bit of, like, bohemianness to her family, too. They're rich but adventurous. They're rich but cool. It tells you, like, I learned everything I needed to know about that family by the fact that she was eating sushi. And not just eating sushi, had, like, a full bento box. Right. Iconic. Have you ever seen Decision to Leave? No. 
there's a great running thing in Decision to Leave where the detective, anytime he meets with, like, the hot murder suspect, he expenses, like, the nicest boxed sushi for the two of them to eat during the interrogation. Oh, my God. It's so good. Uh, all right. Should we discuss the romance? Let's talk about the romance of The Breakfast Club, a movie set in Illinois, but there is a Confederate flag in the library for some reason. Oh my god, I didn't even notice that. It might be like a state flag because there are several state flags in there, but you know what doesn't have a Confederate flag? The state flag of Illinois. No, but if they were doing just state flags of the states, it was definitely on Mississippi's. Yeah, and in 1984, maybe a couple others still too. Right. So, Confederate flags, bad. Breaking down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points. Good. I don't Put know. Put that if I on like money. That. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> that's that's, that's our new segue. <laughs> I don't know how I'm feeling about that one. All right. Well, we're going to go through the romance of The Breakfast Club, which is mostly going to be about Molly Ringwald's Claire and Judd Nelson's Bender. But at some point, we'll have to talk about the other couple that is barely developed in any way. Right. And frankly, developed is generous to Claire and Bender, but they have more screen time together. I have a lot of opinions on this relationship. Okay, so we're going to kick things off with point number one, which is basically the morning of the day, and involves Bender's rampant harassment of Claire, who is a pretty popular girl, and he is, like, one of the bad kids. Just ignore him. Sweets? You couldn't ignore me if you tried. So, so, are you guys like boyfriend, girlfriend? Steady dates? Lovers? Come on, Sporto, level with me. Do you slip her the hot beef injection? Go to hell! Enough! <laughs> and I mean, it sounds like she is a bully. Yes, like that she is like, not taping people's butts together, but is maybe cruelly dismissive of people. Right. And she's in the group. She's like friends with the people who tape butts together. Yeah. It seems like she is not like close with Andrew Emilio Estevez, but they move in the same circles. Yeah. They are talked about as a unit, even if they're not friends. Right. Like he tells her about a party because they know the same people who will be there. Whereas Bender apparently has some friends, but they're the bad kids. And Bender just spends, like, a lot of time verbally assaulting Claire in a very uncomfortable way. Basically, as soon as the students are left alone in the library, which is the first, well, probably not the first, but one of the first bad things that Vice Principal does is leave the kids alone in the room. What does he expect to happen? Be good. He's like, don't talk, I'll hear you. They are the kids in detention. Right. Also, sorry, to go back to the pot, there's a lot of pot in that library. Someone would have smelled it. The smoke detectors would have gone off. Well, yeah, because Emilio Estevez hot boxes a reading room. Yeah, like, Jesus Christ. But basically, as soon as the students are left alone, Bender announces that he has to go to the bathroom, and since they're not allowed to leave, he'll just pee on the floor. And then follows that up with an announcement that all the guys are going to get together and impregnate Claire, Molly Ringwald. And that sets the tone for their relationship for the rest of the movie, basically. Just out of the out of nowhere. Uh-huh. She is fairly upset and uncomfortable because of this. It's just so cruel off the bat. There's never any humor in his teasing of Claire. 
Like it is no. just cruelty, unadulterated cruelty. And again, there is that like uncomfortable element of the fact that Judd Nelson is so clearly 25 and Molly Ringwald is 16. Yeah, it's painful to watch. And it was hard watching it again knowing like knowing that they kiss at the end. Twice. Twice. Like you just watch it you're just the whole time thinking how does that happen? So this kind of becomes a big focus of his is he is interrogating her for much of the movie about her romantic and sexual experience. There's this scene where he gets right up in her face and the whole scene is like played in this way that I think is like fairly effective where it's supposed to be alarming. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, but also kind of seductive, right? There is something kind of magnetic about him here where he's asking her if she's a virgin, if she's been kissed, if she's been felt up. And he's like describing all the ways someone could feel her up. And like, there is something captivating about that exchange, but it is bad. And I don't, I don't know that the movie totally gets that. I don't think the movie does. And that's one of my biggest holdups with the movie. There's an element to which the movie's emphasis on like, you gotta be real. Sometimes leads it to think that being cruel can be the same thing as being real. And I mean, that idea still lingers. Oh yeah, he's saying the thing no one else will. He's real. It's like, no, sometimes you don't say a thing because it's rude. Right, and also truth isn't inherently cruel. Like, you can tell the truth without being cruel, but this movie doesn't seem to think that's an option. Right, there's only hard truth here. Yeah, I I don't know. It's another thing he represents from 80s movies that I don't like. I mean, I think that is what makes, like, you know, you brought up the, like, almost kind of slacker culture of it, right? That's what I struggle with with Ferris Bueller. Because Ferris Bueller's whole goal is to do nothing for a day. (laughs) And that's not that appealing to me. Um, He does a lot in his day where he's doing nothing. He, is, he does, but like... He is just not going to school. Alan Ruck is the hero of that movie. He's the kid who just, like, has his life turned upside down by his annoying acquaintance. Are you a conhead? I am a conhead. I think we talk about this next week. Oh, yes. But what makes Home Alone, which is the John Hughes that I grew up on, work, is that it has that nastiness. But, one, it's funny when the nastiness is, like, a, a 10-year-old, in a way that it's not funny when it's a 25-year-old pretending to be an 18-year-old. And also, like, Chris Columbus, like, brings a real sweetness to that movie. It's also directed at adults. Like, it is a child directing it at adults instead of an adult directing it at a child. I think that's a good point, too. And, like, when Kevin directs it at his family, the movie understands that it's bad. Right. But his family is bad. (laughs) They are. It would be funny for us to do one of those movies and just talk about, like, the parents' relationship. (laughs) Which is so weird. I haven't seen it in so long. I can't imagine it's good. It's it's more strange than anything else. Next Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> we'll keep it in the mix. All right. So, yeah. So, so Bender has just been kind of harassing Claire all morning. She is not interested. At one point during that monologue about, like, has she ever been felt up? She asks him, do you want me to puke? This is where she is giving the most rational response to his behavior. Right. I think the only explanation for what ultimately happens with Claire is she gets really high and it affects her behavior. The pot's making her aggressive, Will. The pot's making her aggressive. Uh, This kind of takes us to point number two, which is when the Breakfast Club eats lunch. They've all brought their lunches, which I think is very funny, but they are allowed to go get a Coke. It's funny to watch Emilio Estevez unpack the most comical lunch you've ever seen with like two fat sandwiches. A big bag of chips, a big bag of cookies, a banana, an apple. He's got, like, a whole cart, like, a quart of orange juice. It's bulking season, Will. Yeah, he's a wrestler. 
But so they they get to wander through the school to get some 1984 Olympics Coke cans. Shout out to Ali Sheedy pulling the meat off of her sandwich and replacing it with pixie sticks and Captain Crunch. Horrific. <laughs> and that is actually what she bit into. I know. Awful. But this is where Claire pulls out her sushi box and people are, especially Bender, are really put off and, and thrown by this, this weird food that she's got. Where's your lunch? You're wearing it. You're nauseating. <laughs> What's that? Sushi. Sushi? <laughs> Rice, uh, raw fish, and seaweed. You won't accept a guy's tongue in your mouth and you're gonna eat that? Can I eat? I don't know. Give it a try. But during lunch, they decide to like go out through the school and they're wandering around kind of aimlessly. It's not clear that they have a goal. It's just they've gotten the idea that they're able to leave, and so they should. And when they hear that the vice principal is a foot in the hallways, Bender takes the fall for the group. He runs off in another direction yelling so that they can make their way back to the library while the, while the vice principal chases him. I think this is where we're supposed to think, like, Claire starts looking at him like, huh, interesting, because he sacrifices for the group. Yeah, that felt like a very vague, poorly wrought out, like oh, he's not so bad moment to me. Right, because it's also Bender choosing again to be the chaos agent, which is what he likes to do anyway. Right. Right. He gets to be the noisiest one. He gets to be the one that the vice principal is mad at, which is what he wants. Yeah. So this is where he then gets, like, locked in a closet and threatened by the teacher. Right. So so this is bad. When we talk about bad teachers in movies, I would say this is, this is less good than we sometimes see. Yeah, this is um, not taught... In most teaching programs, I would imagine. They did not cover this at Notre Dame, no. That is good to know. But Bender pretty quickly breaks out because he climbs up. He does what every kid dreams of doing, which is pushing aside the ceiling tile and climbing around in the ceiling. Yeah, I mean, I dreamed about it. Of course, I still do. And he makes it over the library before the ceiling collapses and he falls into the library. But the sound of the ceiling collapse attracts the vice principal who never investigates it or looks up to notice that a full ceiling tile has fallen out violently. But while the vice principal's in there, Bender has to hide under a table so that he's not seen because he's supposed to be locked up in the closet. And the worst moment in the movie happens. Uh-huh. He's hiding under the table, and down there he realizes that he can look up Claire's skirt and see her underwear. And there is a shot, basically an upskirt shot of the camera, that is not actually of... Molly Ringwald, because she was a minor. Right, that uh, would not be legal. But then Bender starts working his way between her legs, and it cuts to a shot above, so we don't know what exactly goes on down there, if it's just his head moving in there, if he's got his hands in there too, but she is clearly upset. She starts squeezing her legs together to force him out. It's bad. It's sexual assault. Yeah, that's what it is. And another moment where we're supposed to just be like, ah ha ha. I genuinely don't know how we're supposed to think about that. I don't know. It almost feels like it's playing it for humor. Yeah, it does. Like, oh, look, there is a, there's a Porky's quality to it of like, oh, those boys gonna find a chance to look at some hot ladies. Boys will be boys. 
they're getting thwarted again, right? It's like it's like in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a movie I like a lot, but like where Judge Reinhold is like jerking off, imagining Phoebe Cates naked, and then she walks in on him, and it's like, oh no, he got caught. Yeah, bad. <laughs> but this kind of brings us to our next point, which is after lunch, the detention kids really start getting to know each other. They're going through each other's bags to see what everyone's brought. They wind up in this story circle where they talk about what they'd be willing to do for a million dollars. And this is where they're all coming to really understand one another as people. Right. And this is where we get Allison at her weirdest. And that's saying something. There's a lot of talk about how much stuff is in that bag. And like, that means she's either planning to run away or wants people to think she is. It doesn't even seem like a go bag. It just seems like a bag with a lot of stuff in it. Right. It's not well put together. This is also when she announces that she's a nymphomaniac. She's done everything you can think of except a few things that are illegal. She told her psychiatrist and they've been banging regularly since then. None of which is true. Right. She's lying. In a way, kind of like Bender, she is sort of defiantly putting people off. But she's doing so in a way that is uh, quite a bit less bad. Yeah. (laughs) Because she doesn't assault anybody. But it's just like, I don't remember her being this weird. She's pretty weird, right? She's nonverbal for, like, the first half of the day. She just communicates through noises. Yeah. But, like, then even the sandwich that she eats, it's ostentatious. She wants it to be noticed and for people to think, like, wow, what's going on with her? Right. She's so quiet to the point where she wants to be paid attention to. Right, which I think is what ultimately is going on with her, right? She's neglected at home and so has adopted this persona that screams for attention because she thinks it's the only way to get attention. Right, and she's willing to lie to get it, which... Yeah is a learned behavior. Right, exactly. In this same window, Claire and Bender are going through one another's bags. There's this, like, a gross thing where he's taken her, like, makeup brushes and is brushing his teeth with it. It's gross for all parties. Everybody involved. And they have a whole conversation where she's looking through all these photos of women that he has in his wallet for some reason that appear not to be, like, it'd be one thing if he had, like, uh, weird and gross, but, like, if he had a bunch of, like, wallet-sized photos of naked ladies, but it appears to just be, like, photos of other high schoolers. I mean, very weird for a 25-year-old, that's for sure. Well, yes, but she's interrogating him about, like, if he believes in monogamy, because she thinks it's, like, the natural order of things. Yeah. And he kind of waffles on it. He is initially very defiant, but he doesn't hold that firm to it. Yeah. These teens. These teens. When they're in their, their sharing circle... I think at this point, they're all smoking pot. There's this, like, terrible thing building off the Ali Sheedy nymphomaniac thing where they all, like, bully Molly Ringwald until she admits that she hasn't had sex. Yeah, all of them. Have you ever done it? I don't even have a psychiatrist. Have you ever done it with a normal person? Didn't we already cover this? You never answered the question. Look, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. Kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? What? Well, if you say you haven't, you're a prude. If you say you have, you're a slut. It's a trap. You want to, but you can't. Then when you do, you wish you didn't, right? Wrong. Or are you a tease? She's a tease. I'm sure. Why don't you just forget it? Oh, you're a tease and you know it. All girls are teases. She's only a tease if what she does gets you hot. I don't do anything! That's why you're a tease. Okay, let me ask you a few questions. I already told you everything. No, doesn't it bother you to sleep around without being in love? I mean, don't you want any respect? I don't screw to get respect. 
That's the difference between you and me. It's not the only difference, I hope. Face it, you're a tease. I'm not a tease. Sure you are. Sex is your weapon. You said it yourself. You use it to get respect. No, I never said that. She twisted my words around. What do you use it for, then? I don't use it, period. Oh, are you medically frigid, or is it psychological? I didn't mean it that way. You guys are putting words into my mouth. Well, if you just answer the question. Why don't you just answer the question? Be honest. No big deal. Yeah, answer it. Just answer the question, Claire. Talk to us. Come on, answer, answer the question. Don't be easy. It's only one question. No! I never did it! It's like, leave this kid alone! But it's where you get one of the most like famous lines from the movie where it's like, if you do have sex, you're a slut. If you don't have sex, you're a prude. Right. Those are the ideas that still stick with and appeal to kids, right? Yeah. The contradictions of social life and, like, how to navigate all of that. Doesn't stop her from taking part in the bullying. No. Which I think is something the movie's interested in, too, right? That these people who seem like the top of the social hierarchy, that, like, they also are struggling with these things. Yeah. She shows off her talent, which is uh, holding lipstick between her boobs and using it to put on lipstick. Impressive. Yeah. Don't know how she figured out how she can do that. No, I mean, she said she learned it at summer camp when she was in middle school. Yeah, weird. Which suggests that there was like a cabin full of girls all trying this at the same time. Yeah, so one girl knew how to do it. It was teaching everyone else. The way all things are learned at camp. Yes. And it's just like another weird moment of him being a dick to her in this whole scene. Even in the, I feel like this is the moment the movie thinks that he's like, starting to turn and be nicer but i don't feel that no he's still being a jerk yeah so i don't understand how the next point like comes to fruition okay well before we get to the ending of their relationship we have to do a point four detour to talk about what's going on with andrew and alice which is nothing right throughout the movie ali sheedy basically doesn't talk to anybody for the first half during like the lunchtime sequence or maybe a little bit after that Emilio Estevez goes over to her to, like, try to talk to her. She tells him to go away. And then when he does, she gets mad at him for always doing what he's told. You want to talk? No. Why not? Go away. Why do you want me to go? Go away. You have problems. Oh, I have problems. You do everything everybody ever tells you to do. That is a problem. Okay, fine. But I didn't dump my purse out on the couch and invite people into my problems. Did I? But that's really their only interaction until, really until Ali Sheedy gets her makeover. Where did all of the, like, clothes come from? I think she was wearing that shirt under her coat because she's wearing her puffy coat for, like, the entire movie. That Yeah, that is true. So I think that... That's supposed to be the clothes she was wearing all day. Fair. And she does look cute. She does. This is like one of those controversial things that gets thrown around of like being compared to Greece. Yeah. Where to be with the guy, you have to totally change your look and personality. I don't know that I agree with that as much in this movie as I do in Greece. No. In large part because Ali Sheedy, her whole presentation is not something she seems really happy with. No, she doesn't seem very happy. I mean, it's not like she's been interacting with Andrew. It doesn't seem to be about, like, appealing to Andrew as much. as just right, like she doesn't do it for him. Yeah. She's just doing it to feel better about herself. 
Yeah. It's almost like she's trying to learn how to be normal again. Right. And so, like, what happens is, like, when she becomes more open to interacting with other people, then she is able to make romantic connections. Yeah. Now, that all happens ludicrously quickly. Yeah. Because they kiss. They do. They kiss. (laughs) They've spoken twice, maybe? They've spoken twice. It doesn't make sense. I don't think the movie put that much effort into it, into making it make sense. No. It's odd. (sighs) I don't get it. (laughs) But yeah, at the end of the movie, we do see them outside the school as they're getting picked up by their parents, and the two of them have a little kiss, and you're like, I... I guess we're supposed to think that they like each other now. Did he invite her to the party tonight? I don't know. I don't think any of them will be nice to each other on Monday. You know, that's the question. It's a question the movie's interested in. They have a conversation about that, right? Will they actually still be friends? And they all get mad at Claire for saying, probably not. And I think Claire's right. I kind of think she is. I think they, I think it's possible that they will not like go out of their way to be rude to one another. No. And they might, They might say, like, hey, leave him alone. Right. But nothing... They're not going to hang out again. No, they're not going to hang out. But speaking of of surprise kissing, (laughs) in point number five, first, Claire walks Bender back to the closet. No, no, she doesn't, because he goes back through the ceiling. Right. But don't they all go through the ceiling at one point? Maybe that's it, because she is in the closet with him. And while in there, uh, she gives him this little kiss on the neck. You know how you said before how your parents use you to get back at each other? Wouldn't I be outstanding in that capacity? Are you really disgusted about what I did with my lipstick? Truth? Truth. No. She's like, because I didn't think you were going to do it. It's like the one thing he's done all movies is sexually harass you. Yeah, I don't get it. And... He pitches himself as a romantic option, basically being like, it'll really annoy your parents if you go out with me. And she's like, hmm, interesting, interesting sell. And somehow it works. It works because then after they all leave school, they're kissing in the parking lot and she gives him her earring. In front of her dad, too. It's weird how all this kissing at the end explicitly happens right in front of their parents. Right. I can't imagine the conversations in the cars after. Where they're like, oh, who is that? It's like, I don't know. I met him today. I don't get it. Uh, but I guess that is a good question. Do you find the romance believable? I I do not. I do not. Neither. No. I think we've been pretty clear. Even, like, the it'll piss off your parents pitch, like, in a vacuum, I think that could work on Claire. But I don't think it would work for Bender, who has spent all day being really obnoxious to her. It's way past the point of even, like, any other 80s movie I can think of right now of boy being mean to girl and girl kissing boy the negging i'm also just not convinced that like she's gonna be into the idea of a bad boy right that doesn't seem like what she's going for yeah it doesn't make sense it really doesn't and then the emilio estevez ali sheedy thing then bizarrely becomes the more believable of the two yeah (laughs) just because no outright harassment has taken place right like they just i mean they're just teens who kiss yeah it happens and it's it's odd that they kiss yeah so where would you rate this between 0 to 10, where 0 means you believe none of the romance and 10 means you believe all of it? Um, I I think this movie's like a 1. I, it has to be, right? At most, it would be a 2. At most, it's a 2. But I really think it's a 1. I think you're right. Do you think they'll stay together? 
No, I don't even think they'll talk on Monday. Well, here's the thing. I think our kissing couples will kiss again. Like, I don't think these five people are going to get together again. I don't think more than two of them at a time will necessarily get together again. Yeah. I think I think our two kissing couples will hang on for a bit. But long term, no. Um, if you if you had to pick a person from the Breakfast Club to date, whom would you choose? It's tough because there's not that many people. It's right. troubled teens and like bad parents. So I think yeah. I'm gonna go with the janitor. Uh, um, I'm also gonna go with the janitor who was Rick Moranis was cast. Rick Moranis was on set playing the janitor. That tracks. But he insisted on playing him as like. An extreme Russian caricature. It just wouldn't have fit. No. And John Hughes agreed and asked Rick Moranis to leave. Good. Good choice. Yeah. But I would love to see it. But no, I mean, you you don't want to go out with any of these kids. All these kids either are obnoxious or just need to work on themselves as teens. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Mark, should The Breakfast Club be adapted into a stage musical? Um... I think it could work. I don't think it needs to happen. And I'd be kind of surprised if no one has. Yeah. There have definitely been multiple mountings of the Breakfast Club musical. I'm not sure they're all the same one. I think a couple different people have taken a crack at it. That makes but sense. it's never like been on Broadway. It's like regional theaters have put on the Breakfast Club, the musical. I think more than a musical, this thing would work well as a play. Right? It's got one location. I mean, yeah. It, I think Molly Ringwald in her article describes it as a play. Right. It basically, And they basically ran it as a play. They rehearsed it for three weeks, and then they shot it in sequence, hmm. which you never see in movies. Yeah. So, like that, this, this would be a good piece for the high school theater repertoire. Right. But I, I don't know that that's been officially done. I, some places have definitely put on The Breakfast Club to play, but I don't know that it was officially licensed. Right. I think that is fair. I don't know. It'll probably happen at some point. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think that does it for this movie. I think we're off to a good start. Next week, we're going to talk about a romance that might be more believable than The Breakfast Club. I think it has a much higher score. I don't remember what we gave it, but I feel like it was high. Yeah. Uh, More than one. Next week, we're talking about the Lifetime movie High School Possession, also sometimes called High School Exorcism. Uh, you can watch it for free on Amazon Freebie. And if you want to just see the good part, you can skip to about 75 minutes in. And we will be joined, as always, by our Lifetime original movie expert, Melissa. It's a good time. High school possession. Like, do your laundry while it's on. Yeah, make, do not devote your time to, like, your attention fully to it. But put it on and watch The Exorcism at the end. That's fun. It is a very fun last 10 minutes. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook or Twitter at Love the Love Pod. You can find us on Blue Sky at We Love the Love. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from John Hughes' The Breakfast Club? God, I don't even know. You gave a big eye roll at that. There's, like, no good advice in this movie. I'm going to say, eat whatever you want. Someone will still kiss you. That is true. Both of them do eat whatever they want. Both girls eat food that gets them weird looks. They still get kissed by the end of the movie. I think my advice is, if you want to make changes to the way you dress or present yourself for yourself, go for it, and maybe you'll find love after. There you go. That's great. But do it for you. 
All right. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Yeah.